This morning, here's what we're doing differently. We've been in the book of Psalms, and we spent two weeks, the last two weeks in Psalm 51, where David repents of his sin with Bathsheba. And so I was thinking, well, I want to go to a celebratory psalm next, because, because the next song we, psalm we do after this will be a psalm of lament. I didn't want to go from repentance to lament. I wanted to, have, I wanted to get happy. So, so I wanted to look for some celebratory psalms, and, and Elaine and I were looking them over. And then it hit me. There's many psalms in the Bible that are not in the book of psalms. You see, the book of psalms is 150 specific psalms. But a psalm is a literary genre that's all through the Old Testament. And so what we're going to do today, and Elaine and I planned this out, I'm going to read a psalm to you. Then we're going to worship a couple psalms, songs. Then I'm going to come back up and read another psalm to you and worship. And I'll come down a third psalm and worship. There will be minimal preaching. Come on, come on. Um, yes, I heard a groan. Thank you, whoever groaned. Um, I want us to, I'm calling this message Psalms for Life's Situations. Too often we open our Bible and kind of approach it as a cold textbook. The genre of psalms come out of people's emotions from their experiences. And, and that's why there's so many different kinds of psalms. When life is hard, life is good, I've fallen into sin, God, where are you? They write, the writers have written psalms. So today we're going to look at three. We're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 2, if you want to open your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, we'll get you one. So if you don't own a Bible or you don't have one with you, raise your hand, we'll get you one. We're going to look at Psalm, excuse me, 1 Samuel chapter 2. This is the prayer of Hannah. Let me give you the background. What I'm going to do is give background, read the psalm, then we're going to worship. Hannah is married to Elkanah, and Elkanah has two wives. And his first wife has many children, but Hannah cannot bear children. She's barren. And just like today, if that's an experience that you have, you know the pain of that. Now go to a culture where you're seen as cursed by God if you can't have children. So she is deeply filled with sorrow. She can't have children. And she cries out to the Lord. She cries out to the Lord. In fact, one time... She was at the temple, because they go to the temple every year, and Eli, the priest, is um, seeing this woman sitting on the steps outside, outside the area of worship, and she's just moving her lips, but she's not talking. And Eli assumes she's drunk, but she's not. She's praying, to, to, she's praying silently, so she's not talking. She's just praying from her heart. And, and when, when Eli accuses her, this is what, you know, it says, after they had eaten and drank in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son... Then I will give him to you, to the Lord, all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. I mean, he, he, he will be a Nazarite. It's a vow you take. You don't cut your hair, and you don't drink any alcohol. So 
Eli, thinking she's drunk, but here's what she said. I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and grief. So that's the context of Hannah's life. But God blesses her. In fact, Eli says to her right then, the Lord will bless you with a child. And so she conceives Samuel. This is during the period of the judges. This is before the kings. And Samuel is the last judge, but he's also the first major prophet of the Bible. So she gives birth to Samuel, takes him to the age where she weans him, which is, could be as four or five years old, and then brings him to the temple and gives him to Eli and his sons, who are the priests, to raise him up to serve the Lord. So this now is the psalm. The song, which is in the form of a psalm. So you get the emotion of this? Deep grief and anxiety. I couldn't have children. God gave me a child. Now I've dedicated this child to the Lord. So here we go. 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in Yahweh. In Yahweh my horn is lifted high. If you'll notice up here, if you're reading your Bible, it says the Lord, all capital letters. We've changed these to say Yahweh. Because that's God's personal name. It's a personal, it's a name, you, you, you come to me, if you say, hey, pastor, you know what I'm going to say to you? My name's Tony. I appreciate the title. But call me Tony, it's my name. Yahweh is his personal name. Lord is a title. Our translations do this, there's a whole explanation behind it. But, but my heart rejoices in Yahweh. In Yahweh, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like Yahweh. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. You're going to see in all three of the Psalms we read today, it starts off with the character of God. That's, that's the basis of all our prayer. Who is our God we're talking to? Now we're going to see her emotion of how God delivers the downtrodden, how God is for those who are hurting, how God helps those who do not have. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For Yahweh is a God who knows and by, his, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warrior are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. So what she's saying is the self-sufficient, the proud, he's going to take down. But those who are hurting and humble, he's going to rise up, raise up. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has many sons pines away. Yahweh brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. Yahweh sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heaps. He seats them with princes and, he, and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are Yahweh's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose Yahweh will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven, and the Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. 
Here's an interesting thing. In her prayer, she's actually prophesying. At this time, there is no king. No king has been appointed yet. Samuel actually anoints the first king, who was Saul. Then God removes his blessing from Saul, and Samuel anoints the second king, who is David. And we'll look at two psalms that refer to both of them next. But right now, it says that then Elkanah, her husband, went home to Ramah and obviously took the, his two wives with him. But the boy ministered before Yahweh under Eli the priest. So here we have a lady whose heart is broken and calls out to God and he answers her. And that is her prayer to him. So let's stand up. We're going to sing a few songs and keep in mind the character of our God who lifts up the downtrodden. Father, we thank you for the truths that Hannah prayed, Lord, in, in her pain, in her grief, in her anxiety. You relieve that, Lord. Help us when we hit those spots of uncertainty and, and, and emotional pain and fears of the future. Help us to look to you. For you, to, for you our source of salvation, to relieve our pain. Lord, receive our worship now, and we love you. Amen. Have you ever felt the world's against you? Have you ever been in a place where people truly were against you and wanted to cause your ruin? Maybe kill you? I, I bet few of us in this room, unless you've gone to war, have been in a place where someone wants you dead and is actively trying to accomplish it. We're blessed. But no doubt we've all experienced people are against us. They want our ruin, some degree or another. And what do we do then, as far as God's concerned? How, how do we call out to God in a time of, of this weight of the world coming against me, and it seems like I have no recourse, and I'm going to lose? Well, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 21 now. And David is amazed at the length that God went to deliver him from his enemies. Listen to verse 1, 2 Samuel 22, verse 1. David sang to Yahweh the words of this song when Yahweh delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So remember a minute ago I said that Samuel grew up to be the last judge and he was the first major prophet. He anointed Saul as king, but Saul failed miserably. And God came and took the spirit away from Saul and actually an evil spirit took the spirit of God's place. And Saul was a tormented man. And then he went to the house, Samuel went to the house of Jesse and anointed David as king. It, it's a beautiful story, but it was done secretly because Saul would kill David. And David was waiting. David was not going to cause or, or cause Saul's demise so that he could have the throne. David was waiting on God's timing so that he could step into the throne to be the king of Israel. But Saul got wind of this somehow and wanted to kill David. During the times that Saul was tormented by the evil spirit, he was filled with anxiety and craziness, he actually brought David into his house because David played the harp. To play the harp to calm, to soothe Saul's emotions. But every once in a while, Saul would freak out, grab the spear and throw it at David. And regularly, David dodged it and just barely escaped death. 
Finally, David and Jonathan are talking, and Jonathan reveals, my father is against you. My father's against you and wants you dead. And David and, and Saul's son Jonathan were best friends. So David runs off to Philistia, lives among the Philistines, which is Israel's enemy, to avoid Saul killing him. And this goes on for a long time as Saul pursues David to kill him. But eventually, Saul and his family, his boys, even David, are killed in battle. Excuse me, even Jonathan, not David. So sometimes I say things I don't really say, then I watch the video later and go, that was all wrong. <laughs> and nobody corrected me. <laughs> Saul, his sons, including Jonathan, were killed in battle, and David eventually becomes the king. But here is the psalm he wrote to describe God's deliverance in his life. It's a long one. This is a long psalm. So I want you to bear with me. Let's keep um, focused on it. And I have a Bible today. I'm reading the NIV, and I have to have my readers. Sorry. Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge and my savior. From violent people, you save me. He's my rock. Don't imagine just a rock sitting there. Imagine a fortress built from stone that becomes the high point to where your enemies can't get to you, but you can get to them. That's what he's painting the picture here. That God is our rock. He is our horn of salvation. And, and that, that's a debated term, what does that mean, the horn of salvation? Because there was horns on the altar that people would grab onto to plead God's mercy. More likely, this is referring to the horn of an ox, a powerful ox, that that ox takes out people with that horn. So it's talking about the power of God in salvation. But David uses these beautiful, this beautiful imagery, this poetic and dramatic imagery to describe God's deliverance. Verse 4. I called to Yahweh, who is worthy of praise, and I've been saved from my enemies. But listen to the way he describes his turmoil. The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snare of death confronted me. Is he exaggerating? Whether he's exaggerating or not, he's using verbiage to describe deep emotional distress that I'm going to die. That's the situation I'm in. In my distress, I called out to Yahweh. I called out to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. So now I want you to picture here, David on earth, God in heaven in his temple. And all of a sudden, the one he loves, God, the, David, the one he loves, is calling out in pain. They want to kill me, Lord. Yahweh, save me. Now look how God describes Yahweh as he comes to deliver David. And this is, this is I think, we can claim this same thing. Even though you and I may not have people throwing spears at us today or truly wanting us dead, this is the same God who protects us. I lost my spot. page turned. Thank you. In my distress, I called to Yahweh. I called out to my God from his temple. He heard my voice. My cries came to his ears. 
The earth trembled and quaked. The fountains of the heavens shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him, the dark clouds, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Can you see this? Be a little more excited. This This is incredible language to describe a father who hears his son cry in distress. Somebody's hurting him. And he's, I'm just going to use a a euphemism I won't use or or expression. God is charging down on his cherub as though he's on this horse riding to rescue his child. And anyone that gets in his way is going to be destroyed because he's coming to save David. Out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. Yahweh thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning, he routed them. The valley of the seas were exposed, and the fountains of the earth laid bare at the rebuke of Yahweh. At the blast of breath from his nostrils, he reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of the waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but Yahweh was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because, what does it say? He delighted in me. Let's, let's not presume only David has this position before God. I think scripture is clear. And if you have a piece of pencil, piece of pencil, a pencil and maybe a piece of paper, write down Zephaniah 3.17 and look it up later. Because God is talking about all his people there where he shouts over you with joy. He sings love, love songs to you. And he's talking there in Zephaniah to a rebellious generation but he still adores them. That's God's love for you. And David, not necessarily feeling that when his enemies are against him, but calls out to this God, and this God hears his voice and gets on that angel's back and flies down to to earth to save David. Now, you know this is all metaphorical, right? God doesn't ride the back of angels. God doesn't have nostrils. This is written so we grasp the emotion God has for you and I. And when somebody comes against one of his beloved doesn't bode well for them. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. I had a hard time with some of this in light of 10 years later after David writes this, he commits sin with Bathsheba. But let's look how David sees himself in his early days. Yahweh has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of Yahweh. I'm not guilty of turning from God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. Yahweh has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness, to my cleanness in his sight. I, I, I don't think I could pray these words. Um, I, I'd be more like Psalm 51 than saw last week. Oh God, do not reward me according to my deeds. 
But David had a zeal for the Lord, and that zeal included keeping his law. And David was deeply committed to it as a young man. He waned and wavered as time went by. But David fully believes um, he's in right standing before God. 26, to the faithful you show yourself faithful. To the blameless you show yourself blameless. To the pure you show yourself pure. But to the devious you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. You, Yahweh, are my lamp. Yahweh turns my darkness into light. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. So you can see here his confidence because he, because Yahweh is for me, David says, I can do anything. Do you have that belief? Because here, the pride and the haughty, he brings down. So we don't say, we don't say, God, you're awful lucky to have me. It's more, God, I need you. I can do nothing. And when he comes and empowers you, then you can do whatever he empowers you to do. Verse 31, as for God, his way is perfect. Yahweh's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides Yahweh? And who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He causes me to stand on heights. He trains my hand for battle, and my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You make your saving help my shield. Your help has made me great. You provided a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. Drop down to verse 48. Or 47. Yahweh lives. Praise be my rock. Exalted be my God. The rock, my Savior. He who is God who avenges me, who puts the nations under me, who sets me free from my enemies. You exalted me above my foes. From violent men you rescued me. Therefore I will praise you, Yahweh, among the nations. I will sing the praises of your name. He gives his kings great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. I want you to think about God being your rock. We, where we live, we can go to huge edifices of rock. Teresa and I climbed up um, Cloud's Rest in Yosemite, looking down on Half Dome. Then we blew it up and put it on our wall. There's this massive rock that represents strength, immovable, majesty. When we did a mission trip to Bolivia years ago, we were digging holes. It was, it was for children's school in the jungle. And we were, I hate to talk about this after the majesty of the God, we were building outhouses. And we had to dig holes. And we dug a seven-foot hole, three of them, this big around in a couple hours didn't hit one rock and went to Howard the missionary and I said Howard I cannot believe we, we, we dug a hole and did his three holes in his single rock all sand you couldn't do that in Nevada and he said Tony there are no rocks here this is silt from the Andes mountains over thousands of years 
He said this was the Yudhikari Indians. They never left the river they were born on. He says these people have never seen a rock. And he goes, now, fig you, Tony, figure out how do I translate, because he's a Bible translator, how do I translate God is the rock of my salvation to people who have never seen a rock? So today, we have seen rocks, big ones, and we've run into them, <laughs> immovable, strong. That's our God. So let's stand up again and praise him for being the rock of our salvation. Lord, you are so good to us. Vividly burn into our hearts and minds how important we are to you. And how you go to great, you did go to great lengths. You actually sent your son who became human. In humility he came down to save us, to raise us up from our enemies, from our own choices, our own sins, from the evil one. Thank you for that incredible salvation. We love you, Father, the rock of our salvation. Amen. So how many of you were here in the spring of 2014 when this church opened up for its services? Raise your hand. So if only maybe 15% of the people in here. We're going to talk today about David bringing the ark into Jerusalem and the excitement David has for the center of God's worship, the ark, which represents his presence, coming back to Jerusalem. But, but I wanted a, a comparable. I'm not sure what a comparable is because, because a church is not the house of God. Okay, you with me? And it, it's a house where the people of God come to worship God. But this isn't a temple like Israel's temple. But there was, there, this was building was a long time in the making. A long time. It, it started back in the, I don't know, before 2008. And um, then when the economy dropped... Now, I may have this story somewhat wrong, so you, you people who are here, don't, don't, don't correct me. Just, just assume I got it right. Anyways, the economy dropped, ran out of money, couldn't finish it. The church did not want to go into debt, so they wrapped it in plastic. And, um, and I had heard later it became known as the shrink wrap church. And how many years was it in plastic? A long time. But then, but then finally... The generosity of the people in the church raised the money. And in the spring of 2014, they opened it up for its first services. And I'll bet there was jubilation among the people of God. Was there not? And so David is incredibly jubilant to bring the ark in. But let me give you the background to this psalm. We're going to be in 1 Chronicles 16. <clears throat> During Saul's reign as king... They take the ark into battle. It represents, the, it represents the presence of God. So there's a presumption. It even got superstitious. If we bring the ark, then God will have, create a victory. Well, they lost, and the Philistines took the ark. And they took it back to their temple, and they put it in their temple next to their pagan god, the idol of their god, Dagon. And so they put the ark in there, and there's the, the statue of Dagon. And the next morning, they come back in. And Dagon has fallen on his face before the ark. So they pick him back up, put him upright. They come back the next day. Dagon has fallen down again before the ark and broke his arms off. 
Lifeless idols can't hold a match to Yahweh. So as time goes on, God strikes the Philistines with boils on their skin. And finally they said, let's get rid of this ark. So they, they put it on a cart and they send it back to Israel. And wherever it goes, it goes. And it goes to a man's house who kept the ark for years. Now David becomes king. And David now wants to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. And he's excited to do this. So he takes some men and goes to, I think his name was, let me hear, Abinadad's house to get the ark. And he puts it on a cart, and they start bringing it to Jerusalem. And there's excitement. But, but the ox cart hits a hole, and, and it, as it, the, ark, the cart dips, and the ark starts to fall off the cart, and Uzziah, who's one of the priests just trying to get it there, grabs the ark to stop it from falling, and what happens to Uzziah? God strikes him dead because you weren't supposed to touch the ark, and they knew that. David is distraught. He is sad. He is angry at God. Why would you do this? We're trying to do a good thing. And the message that comes back is, if you want to do a good thing, do it the right way, like I told you to. So 1 Chronicles 9 tells the story of David doing it the right way. And so I got to find 1 Chronicles 9. 1 Chronicles 16, I'm sorry. So now David brings the ark in properly, carried on poles as it's supposed to be. No one touches it. And he brings it into Jerusalem and much probably, I don't know what the celebration was like when we opened this building, but David is filled with exuberance and joy and he is dancing before the Lord. He actually strips down to his ephod, which, you know, roughly speaking, is underwear, you know, and he's dancing before the Lord and his wife, Micah, sees him and says, you're shameful and, and you're undignified. You showed yourself to be undignified before the people of God. And David says, you think that's undignified? You watch, because I'm here to worship God, because the ark represents the presence of God. God is now back among the people. So David was excited. So you're welcome to dance before the Lord, but let's leave the ephod at home, okay? The, um, so now, here's David's praise. We're going to start in verse 8, but I'm going to read you verse 7, because you see David set up a worship band. And Asaph was the leader of it. And there were, there were instruments, there were cymbals, made loud noises, there were the harps, there were lyres, which were like a guitar. And, um, and so David now has this band, and he sings this song before God. So that, that day, David first appointed Asaph and his associates to give praise to the Lord in this manner. So here's the psalm, verse 8. Give praise to Yahweh, proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him, sing praise to him. Oh, gosh, I hate my glasses. Sing praise to him, tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Look at how, we're, this is what we're supposed to do. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek Yahweh rejoice. Look to Yahweh and his strength and seek his faith, face always. That's, that's a command to us. 
Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. You, his servants and descendants of Israel, his chosen ones, the children of Jacob, he is Yahweh our God. His judgments are in all the earth. You hear the excitement? I'm trying to bring it out in my voice. David is full of energy here and excitement to have the presence of God back in Jerusalem. Verse 15, he remembers his covenant forever, the promise he made for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. You understand Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Israel? Do you understand that genealogy? Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons. But what was Jacob's name before God changed it to Jacob? Excuse me, what was God, Jacob's name after God changed it? Israel. So the, the, Israel, Jacob, Israel has 12 sons, the 12 sons of Israel. So you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 sons of Israel, and God has made a covenant with them, made promises to them. And David says, you're faithful. You always keep your promises and covenants. To you I will give the land of Canaan as a portion you will inherit. When they were but a few in number, few indeed, and strangers in it, they wandered from nation to nation and from one kingdom to another. He allowed no one to oppress them. For their sake he rebuked kings. Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. God protects his people. It's interesting how often the Bible rehearses the history of God's faithfulness. And it's like when we come to God in prayer and we tell him the history of his faithfulness in our life, did God forget he was faithful? No. So why do we rehearse his faithfulness? Why does David rehearse what God knows? It, it, by us saying, it's a reminder to us. And it puts us on a foundation of history that God makes promises and he keeps them. Sing to Yahweh all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. Now he talks about idols. So rem remember how Dagon the idol fell down. For great is Yahweh and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, which if you go into Jeremiah, if you go into I Isaiah, they mock idols because they're, they're lifeless. They do nothing. They sit on a mantle, and people bow before them as though they could answer their prayers. They don't talk back. They don't hear anything. And so Isaiah mocks them relentlessly. You know, he just mocks them relentlessly of, of, hey, hey, idol, do something. Say something. Tell the future. Do something. Anything. But they can't. And it says those who put their trust in idols are most to be pitied. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but Yahweh made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his dwelling place. Ascribe to Yahweh, all you families of the nations. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Worship, excuse me, ascribe to Yahweh the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Would you stand up with me? I want to read the next paragraph, and then the one after that, I want you to read with me. So let me read this one. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, Yahweh reigns. 
Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let the trees of the forest sing. Let them sing for joy before Yahweh, for he comes to judge the earth. Now together, if you would. Verse 34. Give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good. His love endures forever. Next one, Dean. Cry out, save us, God our Savior. Gather us and deliver us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen. and praise Yahweh. Let's do that right now.